Father, once again, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't think I've ever known a Christian who didn't believe prayer was important. I think there is something inherently a part of being a follower of Jesus that we know a part of that is praying. But the question is, what does it mean to pray? How much do we pray? How little do we pray? What do we pray about? We have all kinds of questions about prayer. And of the thousands upon thousands of books that have been written through the centuries about prayer, we still don't have prayer in a box. And we can talk about facets of prayer. We can talk about little this part and that part of prayer. But quite frankly, I'm not sure we're ever going to come to a final conclusion of, okay, we figured it all out. It's bigger than us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't learn everything we can. And it doesn't mean that we probably, all of us, need to be more engaged in prayer. Tim Keller once wrote that prayer is the key to understand everything we need about who we are to be and what we are to do. And while in theory we hear that and say, yeah, the prayer is everything, I'm not sure that's always how it comes out in practice. And part of the, part of the reason for our struggle with prayer is that there's so much we don't understand and we're trying to figure it out. And I think the story in Mark 5 gives us a little bit, of a, a little bit more of an idea about at least one facet of prayer. Here you have two people who come to Jesus and pour out their hearts to him. At some point during their conversations with Jesus, both of them, it says, fall at his feet. That is a, a sign of, of need. They are begging him. They are pleading with him. They're doing everything they can in their power to, to let him know how much they need his help. I think both of them are desperate. I get the feeling probably both of them are at the end of their rope. The woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, certainly she's done everything she can before she comes to Jesus. I suspect that a leader of the synagogue coming to Jesus might be a last resort too. Surely there are other places we can go, other things we can do than that rabbi who's causing so much trouble. But when your daughter is gravely ill, you do what you have to do. And so they both come to Jesus and they beg for Jesus' help. There is in those actions a little bit of the sense of, yeah, I think if I were to define prayer, that's what it would be. Asking for God's help. Wanting God to do something for me or for those I love or even for the world. But if I were to boil down what prayer is, it's primarily coming to God with my needs and burdens. The thing that I, I find fascinating about Scripture is that it keeps telling us over and over again that that's exactly what God wants us to do. Jesus says on a number of occasions things like, 
Ask, seek, knock. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Your heavenly Father loves it when you come to him with your needs. Come to him. The writers of Peter and Paul and the other writers of Scripture keep telling us that God calls us to come to him, to bring our burdens to him, our concerns to him about our lives, others, and the world. This is what God wants from us, to come with him with our needs. But I'm discovering that in addition to, what, to that call of God for us to come to him with our burdens and our needs that just sort of seems natural to us, God is always wanting to do more. We are thinking, okay, God, this is a need I have, and I want you to, to meet this need. And God is saying, okay, I'll address that need, but I've got a lot more I want to do in addition to that. And one of the things I find hard for myself about prayer is I tend to come with it, I tend to come to it with my own agenda. God, this is what I want you to do. And I'm not really looking for anything more than that. I just kind of want you to take care of this one right now. And then I'll be back with other things. Believe me, I'll be back. You know, I will, I promise. But right now, I'm not looking for anything more than that. I just, I'm just looking for this. And God's never satisfied with that. I think that's why he stops the procession to, and asks, who touched me? He didn't need to do that. The woman has already been healed. What she came to get from Jesus, she has gotten. She has been healed. And for her to walk away, she would walk away thinking Jesus is the greatest person in the world because he healed me. He did exactly what I asked him to do. Perfect. That's all I wanted. But Jesus is not satisfied with that. And he stops the procession, and he says, who touched me? And, of course, the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? He says, no, no, no. Somebody touched me in a very special, specific way. And after they look around, okay, who touched Jesus? Who touched Jesus? Here comes this woman, falls at his feet, and explains her story. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to her is that he's not just interested in the, the need that she comes to him about, this thing that she needs fixed. He's interested in that, greatly interested, and he, and he, and he addresses it. But he wants her to know that he wants her to understand that she's a child of God. Because everything in culture tells her she's not. The fact that she's a woman means she's automatically going to be a second-class citizen in that culture. The fact that she's had this, this bleeding for 12 years would mean that she lives her life as a person who is in the culture unclean, which means that she can't be around many people. It certainly means she's probably not going to be allowed into the synagogue to worship. And she knows that everyone looks at her Everyone, every, she knows the looks of people saying, stay away from me. And, and under, underneath that is this mindset that says, obviously, you must have really sinned against God for him to put, allow this to happen to you. Every message she gets from the community, from the synagogue, from God, I think she would feel this from God himself, is saying, you aren't worth anything. 
And if she walked away being healed of her problem, she would be healed of her physical problem, but she would still walk away healed thinking, I'm not worth anything. And Jesus won't let her walk away with that mindset. And it makes me wonder if maybe not only does God want to to hear us pray for, to him about the needs and the burdens that are on our hearts and that he wants to help us with those. More than anything, God wants us to know that we are his children. We are his beloved children. And no matter what everybody else tells us, no matter what the people outside the church tell us or people inside the church tell us, no matter what we think God may be saying to us, Jesus is telling us, you are a beloved child of God and nothing can change that I think that's often that's the more than our requests that Jesus wants us to understand I, I think I think part of what he's trying to do is to remind us he is not a cosmic vending machine this is not a mechanical kind of bartering type relationship that we have with God. God, I'll do this if you do that. God, I'll put in my dollar and you give me what I want. We may, as we get older, we realize that, that you know, the, the vending machine costs a little more than it used to. So we have to give up a little bit more to God, but we'll give it as long as we get what we want. But here's the deal, God. If I do this, you have to do that. What we forget is that in many ways that's the heart of the pagan mindset about their gods. We control God, our gods. Because if, if we do this, the gods have to give us what we want. And Yahweh says to them over and over again, that's not who I am. For one thing, you don't have enough to give me to give you what you want. There's nothing you have that I, that I want or need. But the bigger thing is, you don't have to barter with me. You don't have to make deals with me. You don't have to trick me. You don't have to cajole me into doing good. I love to give good gifts to my children. Jesus says, if we who are ungodly parents love to give good gifts to our children, how much more our Father in heaven. And I am convinced that until we begin to see that perspective of God and prayer, prayer will always be something that gets pushed to the periphery of our lives instead of something that we engage in in which God reminds us of who we are and of who he is. See, God loves to, to answer our prayers. He doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want him to, which is one of our problems. You know, I read something the other day where someone said, if God answered all of our prayers, then we, not God, would be in control of the universe. I suspect that's probably one of our issues with prayer is that we want to be in control. We love to be in control, right? And, and we, want, we want God to be able to do, want God to do what we want him to do. And when he doesn't, we get frustrated. And understandably, 
There are some things we pray about and we think to ourselves, why in the world would God possibly not want to answer that prayer? I mean, this is a prayer that's, it's not for, it's not about something petty for me. It's, it's about something in the world. Why would God not want to answer that prayer? And the only answer I have to you is, I don't know. I think sometimes God doesn't answer those prayers because he's at work in ways that we can't see. And he's answering it, just not in the way that we want him to answer it. But I also think sometimes God understands that there is, that he wants to do something in us as we pray. And I, I don't know, again, I, I don't have the answers to why God doesn't, why God answers some prayers the way he does and why he doesn't others. But I do know this. When I pray for other people, when I pray for things in the world, if I consistently pray about those things, I find my heart being changed. I find that when I am consistently praying about people and circumstances, I find that I start being more loving. I care about those people more. I care about the situation more. It becomes much more important to me. As I keep praying about it, I think God keeps working on me, and I think prayer often leads to love, and love often leads to action. And sometimes, I don't know when, but sometimes I wonder if maybe God doesn't answer the prayers the way I want him to because he wants me to become so engaged in the need that he uses me to be a part of the answer to the prayer. And maybe that's the same thing with you sometimes. Because honestly, the most profound witness is often God's people being present in the middle of a circumstance, in a situation, and a struggle for people. I'm not saying that that's always the way, reason God does it, and I'm not saying that's the solution to all the questions we have about prayer. But I just think God is always working. And one of the ways God, which God is always working is what he does in us as we pray. And maybe... Maybe sometimes the most important outcome of prayer is not what God does out there, as important as that is, but maybe what God does in here. Maybe how God works in us as we pray. To be his image bearers in this world for the burdens and the concerns and the needs, to be the answer to our prayers with, with flesh and blood with people, to show them who God is and his love for them and his compassion for them and his grace for them that people don't believe until they see it in people like us. Again, we sh that doesn't mean we should stop praying about the great needs of the world or that God doesn't care about them because he does. He's at work. But sometimes God, God wants to get into us as we pray. When I think about Jairus in this story, he's put in an interesting position here. 
He comes to Jesus, tells him about his daughter, and Jesus says, oh, let's go. And they start off, and then this whole episode with the woman comes up. I don't know what Jairus is thinking when he's standing there, but if he's anything like me, he's getting more and more impatient. When he left, his daughter was gravely ill. He finds Jesus, and now they're on their way back, and now they stop. And I think if it were me, I'd be getting as close to Jesus as I could, maybe tapping him on his sleeve, you know, that gentle kind of, just kind of pulling at his sleeve a little bit. We do need to keep moving here. Let's go. Let's, get, let's move. Looking at the disciples, like, can you do anything here because my daughter... And to, and to make it worse, he knows who this woman is, I'm sure. When he hears the story come out about her life, he has to be thinking to himself, Jesus, you're putting my daughter's life at risk for this unclean woman? And yet Jesus makes him wait. Something in me believes that in this moment, this woman isn't the only one who needs to, be, needs to know she's a beloved child of God. I think Jairus needs to know that too. And what's fascinating to me is that when the dust settles at the end of this story, the waiting has led to an even greater miracle than Jairus ever had in mind. His daughter's not just healed, she's resurrected from the dead. And the power of God in Jesus is revealed in a way that he would have never seen without the delay. I don't like delays. You know, it makes me think of waiting rooms. I don't like waiting rooms. Waiting rooms are some of the worst places in the world. You sit there and you have no idea when, you're go- when the waiting is going to end. If you're in a hospital, you have no idea when people are going to come and give you information. If you're in some kind of an office, you have no idea when the door is going to be open and you get to go in. Waiting rooms are maddening places to be. But Jesus seems to not be concerned about that with us. And part of the praying for the needs of our lives and others in the world is being willing to be patient and to learn and to let God work in us and to believe that God is at work even when we have to wait. Jesus says to him, trust me, trust me. Jesus is saying that same thing to us. Again, I wish I knew why sometimes we wait and sometimes we don't. I don't know the answer to that. I just know that God wants to do something in us as we wait. For whatever reason. And God wants to create in us a passion for Him, for others to see ourselves as he does to believe that God is who he says he is I think there's this really strong connection between prayer and the nature of God one of the reasons why I think we can't quite get our prayer in a box is because we can't get God in a box 
And prayer is so intimately connected to who God is. But that may be the point. Then in a consistent times of prayer, we begin to see who God is, a God of power and goodness, and who we are, his beloved children. My prayer for me is that that God will give me grace that as I continue to engage in prayer, those two revelations will become clearer and clearer. And out of those revelations will become a clearer picture of everyone else who are beloved children of God too. And that's my prayer for you as well. Can we trust him? we trust him enough to bring all of our burdens to him? And can we trust him enough to answer in the way he knows best? And can we trust him to do more in us, for us, than we could have dreamed or imagined? I'd like for us just to take a moment of silence and just to listen the Spirit speak into our hearts. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Father, we do want to bring before you our burdens and concerns today. We thank you that you care about every part of our lives in this world. So we pray for all who are grieving today. Give them the comfort of your presence. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues, and we pray specifically today for Norm Smithley and ask for your healing on him. We pray for all of the relationships that are fractured and broken and that you would knit them back together in your love. We pray for fear and anxiety about the future and the unknown and fill us with the calming peace of your presence. Father, we thank you for what you're doing, not only in us, in this place, but beyond us. We pray today for the North Collins Wesleyan Church and Pastor Jordan Kazuski. May they know your blessings in all that they do today and in the days to come. We thank you for the ministry 
of the Rochester Youth Association. And as they are planning more and more ministries, particularly targeting the Latino population of Rochester and beyond, we pray, Father, that there will be great fruit that comes from their work. And we are privileged and grateful to be a part of what they are doing there. And Father, we're continually burdened about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We ask, Father, that they will have the hope of the gospel in their lives and in their words as they live it and share it. Protect them, inspire them, bless them. And may their witness not only be used to bring others into the kingdom, but may their witness be an inspiration to us. Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We ask, Father, that you will, you will anoint it with your spirit, that as we eat and drink, we will know the grace and the power, the goodness and the truth of who you are, of who we are, and the depths of your love for this whole world. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen.